right, good morning. Uh, whether you're here at Botany, which is cool to have you here, but also good morning to everyone down in, in Hastings. It's cool to have you guys watching us uh, via video. And if you're watching or listening to this on the internet, it's great to have you with us as well. I want to ask you a question this morning um, that I actually raised earlier in the year, but I want to come back to today. And the question is this. What's your evangelistic temperature right now? And if you're thinking, what the heck are you even talking about? It's a concept that we introduced back at the start of this year when we introduced the whole theme for this year, which is love right where you are. And what we're wanting to do as a leadership this year is raise the evangelistic temperature in our church. And what we mean by that, we've taken that from an American pastor who's a good mate, um, his name's Kevin Harney, and he's written a book called Organic Outreach for Ordinary People. And he simply uses that phrase, evangelistic temperature, to describe how do you feel at the moment in terms of your passion for sharing your faith with Jesus with friends who don't know Jesus yet. And so he just uses a simple scale of 1 to 10, and 1 is like I'm ice cold and don't care about anyone, and 10 is like I am raging hot, and most of us are somewhere in the middle as Kiwis. Normally we're down the lower end of the spectrum because we rate ourselves harshly on those kind of things. Um, but the key idea behind it is simply trying to help us realize that we, we have an obligation, if we're followers of Jesus, we've got an obligation to share our faith that we have and our, our delight and our love for Jesus with, with other people, with our friends and family members who don't know him yet. But the reality is for many of us, we often don't really hold on to that or we don't just get as excited as we should be about this. And so our evangelistic temperature can often be down the low end of the scale. And the point that Kevin makes, which I think is helpful, is at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what number you pick on the scale. It doesn't matter what rating you give yourself. The key thing is how are you going to move um, or raise your evangelistic temperature by one degree? So if you're, if you're a one... How are you going to move that to a two? Or if you're a four, how are you going to move that to five? And so on. And so really the whole goal of this year, the focus of this year as a church family, is to just raise our evangelistic temperature up one degree. That all of us as individuals, but also us as a collective church family, would just be more excited about sharing Jesus um, with our friends and our family members who don't have a relationship with him yet. And it's appropriate time to come back to that question and that concept and just for us to think again, gee, where is my evangelistic temperature? How excited am I about sharing my faith? Because this morning we come to a really important uh, juncture, a really important key change in the, the book of the New Testament in the Bible that we've been looking at for a few weeks, which is called First Peter. Peter was a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter to a bunch of Christians to encourage them to really live for God. And we've been exploring the first part of this letter that's a key part of our Bibles. And we've looked through, we've gone through the first kind of main section or main chunk of his letter where his whole point has been that you are chosen by God, that you, if you're a Christ follower, you are loved and forgiven and chosen and secure in God and he loves you uh, far more deeply than you probably realize. And Peter starts there because what he's going to do is call these people who he's writing to to really live well for God, but he wants them to understand the why 
why first? And so we've spent a few weeks unpacking this opening section where he says, you are chosen. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, you are deeply loved by God. Now in light of that, he's going to move into the next section of his letter to say you're not only chosen and deeply loved though, you are called. You are called by God to live for him in light of the fact that he loves you so much and has forgiven you so much and has chosen you. And so that's where we're coming to today uh, in First Peter. So if you've got a Bible with you, either a paper Bible or you've got the Version app on your phone or iPod or whatever it is that you want to use, I want to invite you to come with me to First Peter chapter 2. And we're starting into this next section that we are called and God calls us to live for him. So we're going to look at just two verses today, First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. And it actually begins um, with this little line that I've got up here in between. Dear friends. Peter uses that twice at the beginning of chapter 2 verse 11 and then again at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, chapter 4 verse 12. And it's kind of that little uh, line that helps break the letter into the three pieces um, that kind of forms it. And so we're starting in, in, in verse 11 here, and what he wants them to understand is that we are called to live good lives for God. In fact, that's the key idea today. This is the key idea of this message, of this little section of his letter. This is the key idea, really, of this whole section that we're launching into and starting into over the next few weeks. In fact, I would argue this is the key idea of Peter's letter. If you want to understand First Peter in one sentence, this is it. Because you are chosen and loved, live good lives for God's glory. Live a great life for God is basically what Peter's saying. But he's been really careful to start his letter not with the command to live a good life for God, but to actually start with this whole idea you're chosen and loved and forgiven. Now, in light of that, now, Live a good life for God. That's essentially what he's doing. So let me read these verses to you, just two verses, and you can follow along if you've got the Bible there or you've got your app on your phone or whatever it is. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is his opening to this whole section, and he's going to unpack what he tells us in these two verses. He's then going to unpack and show us how in, in the rest of this kind of section. But notice the way he begins. Dear friends, which is actually the word, technically it's the word in the original Greek language that it was written in, um, beloved. So it's not only the idea of dear friends horizontally, that Peter loves them and is writing to them, it's also the idea vertically, that they are loved by God. So he's reiterating this idea that they're chosen and loved. But then he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And those are two words he's already introduced into the letter. Back in the very opening of his letter, when he, he wrote his dear church, he wrote to them as elect exiles, 
So he's already called them that. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, he's already said, you're foreigners here, so live life well. And this idea of, of foreigners and exiles is kind of the idea of someone who's living in a country that's not their own. So he's saying to them, if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever community you live in, whatever society or country you're a part of, whatever culture that you're in, because you follow Jesus, it's almost like you're a citizen of a different place. You're a citizen of heaven, and it means that you don't necessarily altogether fit in the culture you're in. You kind of fit. You know, you wear the same clothes, and you talk the same language, and you support the same sports teams and listen to the same music, um, mostly. But there's a sense in which you don't quite fit because you're a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the country or the society or the community you're in. So you're kind of like a foreigner or an exile. And we saw when we started into this letter a couple of months ago, I suggested that there's four ways or four responses we can make if we're foreigners and exiles in, in this place. Number one is that we can just fit in. In other words, we can just become uh, like everyone else around us. We can have the same standards, the same morality. Our lives can just look exactly like their lives with no difference at all. Or we can opt out. We can kind of withdraw from the world around us, the society or the community that, that we live in, and we can opt out and form little Christian huddles or bubbles and, that are nice and safe, and we can just hang out with each other and not really have too much to do with anyone around us. Or we can fight back. We can realize that society may be going in a direction that we don't like, that maybe some morals are going down the gurgler and we're not happy about it, and so we can choose to, to fight that and protest that and, and make our, our alternate views clear as though we're attacking the culture around us. Or the fourth option is that we can stand out, that we can live a different kind of life that, that just looks different to people around us and actually can create a thirst. And this is the option that Peter's writing for. This is what Peter's calling us to do. To not just fit in with the world around us, to not opt out from the world, and to not fight back, but instead to stand out. That's what he's going to be calling us to do when he writes in verses 11 and 12 to abstain from these desires and to live good lives in the world that we're in. So the way he's going to do that is pretty simple. In these two verses, there's two commands and two reasons. So he gives two commands, and for each of those commands, there's a reason. Verse 11 is more negative. Verse 12 is more positive. And that's the way, really, that these two verses uh, unfold. So he starts with a negative command in verse 11. You notice that? As foreigners and exiles, he says, abstain from sinful desires. We're to abstain from anything that doesn't fit with the holiness of God and with the character of God. So this is going, he's starting by going after that first option that we just fit in. That, you know what, none of us like looking different, none of us like standing out from the crowd, and so sometimes there's a mentality that I don't want to be different from everyone else, I'm just going to fit in, my life's going to look exactly like everyone else, I'm just going to go with the cultural norms around me, and my life will look no different from everyone else. And Peter's going, no, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your life should look different in some key ways. Not some weird ways. Well, Partially weird, maybe, but some, some different ways because for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're called to abstain from sin. We're called to live our lives differently. He's going to make this clear in a couple of chapters' time in First Peter 4. 
He's going to write over there further along, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So there's some of the things that Peter's saying we abstain from. If you're a follower of Jesus, it means you don't go off um, getting plastered on, on, on beer or wine or whatever. You don't go off in sexual orgies. You don't go off living a life of debauchery. There are certain things, behaviors in the world around us that are sinful, that are wrong. And so Peter says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you abstain from that. You don't live that way. But it's not only some of the bigger, more obvious things. He's already said at the beginning of chapter 2, talked about some more internal kinds of sinful desires. So he's talking about getting rid of things like malice, which, is, which means hatred. Getting rid of deceit in our lives. Getting rid of hypocrisy and envy and slander. And to be honest, these are the things that maybe for many of us as followers of Jesus, we may not do the biggies, but we may have these kinds of things lurking in our hearts all the time. And so Peter's writing and saying, whatever sinful desires you personally struggle with, it's important that you understand part of your call as one who is chosen and forgiven and loved is to lay that stuff aside, to not give in to those kinds of desires that are wrong because they don't fit the character of God. That means that even though we may live in a society or a community, a world where people choose to give in and do what they feel like doing and party up and, and sleep together and whatever else, who commit to materialism and hypocrisy and envy, he's saying you need to be different. I want you to abstain from those kinds of sinful desires. He's basically reiterating what he's already said in his letter. When he said, as, as, as obedient children, if you've been adopted by God through your faith in Jesus... He's already said, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Abstain from those things is now what he's saying. Why? Because your father's holy. So you be holy in all that you do because the one you follow is holy. Someone um, recently sent me uh, an article. Um, it was really cool, actually. The name of it was, Let's Stop Pretending Christianity is Actually Relevant. That was the name of the, the, the article. Let's stop pretending that Christianity is actually relevant. And the author of it, Benjamin Sledge, wrote these words. It's not actually cool to give your money to the poor or tithe to the church. It's not cool to wait to engage in intimate sexual relationships until you're married. It's not cool that you didn't get all crazy at the bar and end up taking your shirt off. Christians were never relevant or cool to begin with. And I really like the point he's making because... When I grew up, uh, I grew up in a Christian family and, and have been in the church my, pretty much my whole life. When I grew up, we were pretty much told that if you're a Christian, there are certain things you don't do. You don't drink alcohol. You don't dance. You don't go to movies. And then later that one got changed to you don't go to movies of anything higher than a G. And you look at those, can, I look at those kind of rules now and go... Those, those are just silly. There's no biblical grounding for those necessarily. You could argue that there's some good wisdom behind some of those things, but the Bible doesn't say those commands. And so what we have often done in the church is swing away from that kind of stuff. You know, it's okay to go to a movie and enjoy that. It's, a, it's okay to enjoy, you know, dancing. It's okay to have a beer or a glass of wine. It's not a big deal. 
But I think we've swung it so far that there's almost a tendency that we want to fit into the culture around us to show that Christianity isn't irrelevant. It's not uncool. And I think Benjamin Sledge just helps us realize, you know what, there's a level in which Christianity is irrelevant. It is kind of uncool to be a Christian. Because while you may enjoy a glass of wine, you don't get crazy at the bar and end up with your shirt off. You, know, you don't end up in illicit sexual relationships. You don't end up giving in to the God of materialism and just spending your money completely on yourself. What we're actually called to is a life that is different from the world and the community around us. And we're called to abstain from sinful desires. And we need to be careful that the stuff we, we fight against and we talk about not indulging in is actually the biblical things that we're called not to indulge in and not some man-made rules. But at the same time, we need to realize that, you know what, following Jesus and living for him means abstaining from sin, and that's kind of weird. In a world where people just feel free, if that's how you feel, you just go ahead and do it, no one's got the right to tell you that's wrong, we're living to a different standard, and that is kind of weird. And so at times we are going to be a little different, and that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus who are chosen and loved. So that's the first command that he makes here in this passage, to abstain from sin. Then he gives the reason in, in, in the last part of verse 11. So the reason we're to abstain from sin, Peter says, is because we're at war. And we need to use that kind of concept um, carefully. Because we're not at war with the society that we live in. We're not at war with the government who may be legislating stuff that we don't like and we're not comfortable with. Um, the Bible talks about the fact that we are in a spiritual warfare, that we are at war with the demonic world. And so our main weapon in that warfare is, is prayer. Uh, Paul, for example, wrote to um, the church in Ephesus in another letter in the New Testament that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. Against, it's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in other words, the, the battle that we're in is not against the government and not against people around us and not against non-Christians who have a different view of us and a different morality than us. Our battle is actually against the dark forces, the demonic forces in this world. But it's also against ourselves. Because not only is there an external spiritual battle going on around us, there is an internal spiritual battle going on in us every day if we're followers of Jesus. Because on one hand, we have the Holy Spirit of God within us calling us to live a great life for him. On the other hand, we've still got our fallen nature in us that just wants to do whatever we want to do and live in rebellion against God. And so that's why another author in the New Testament, James, will write, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, all of us have got this internal battle going on within us all the time. We've got an internal war between what we know God calls us to and what we feel like doing sometimes. And the way we win that war is to follow what Peter has said here. We're to abstain from sinful desires. We're to choose to not give in to that. We're to choose to stand firm and hold fast against the natural tendencies often of what we want to do. 
That means if we are tempted to lust or we've got this propensity towards lust, we have to work really hard to not give in to that. If we've got a propensity to just get angry and lose our rag at the, at the drop of, a, of whatever, then we need to work hard to battle that tendency within us. If we've got a tendency because we don't feel great about ourselves, so we end up trying to gossip all the time and pull other people down, the Bible's clear that gossip is sin. We're to abstain from that and fight against the desires of our own hearts sometimes that don't line up with the character of God. About 400 years ago, there was a, a pastor very well known, and his writings are still around today, called John Owen. And he wrote this about the internal battle in us. John Owen said, Christ must fight for every inch of territory in us, within the mind, within the affections or the emotions, within the will. No area of one's life is secured without struggle. Even when God's grace enters the soul of man, sin is still there and pervasively so. Thus we find there is universal warfare in the soul of man. I actually find that encouraging. That this battle that I constantly seem to have with particular sins that I seem to struggle with and desires that I want to give in to and stuff that I just seem to really battle with, that's to be expected. That's, that's normal. I'm not, I'm not some weird Christian in that area. I'm like the rest of you. Because you all have those kind of battles too, don't you? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you on one hand calling you to live the right way, but you've got these tendencies in you as well that keep sucking you the other way. And Peter's acknowledging that. And Peter's coming and he's saying to us, no, you abstain from those desires. You fight against them. That You refuse to give in because you are a follower of Jesus, because you're chosen and loved. You're to abstain from sin. Why? Because we're at war and you need to stand firm. So that's the negative side in verse 11. But then he spins it in verse 12 to the positive side. And the positive command in verse 12 is live good lives. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Live a good life. Now, we have to be really, really careful with our understanding here. We do not live a good life to be accepted by God. We do not live a good life so that God would love us. We do not live a good life so that one day God will let us into heaven. That's the way that religion works, which is not what the Bible calls us to. Religion, basically, whatever religion you're talking about, is basically you do all the right stuff, you tick all the right boxes, you sort your life out, and one day if you've done enough, and no one's never sure quite the enough is, but once you've done it, if you've done enough then God will love you and God will forgive you and God will let you into heaven one day when you die. And that is not Christianity. That is not the message of the Bible. The reality is that we can't do enough. We are sinners. We've rebelled against God. Every single one of us from the moment we were born have turned our back on God, followed our own agenda, said no to him, pursued our own stuff, and we have failed him and we are broken people. And the reality is we can't fix that. We can't make up for that. We can't do enough so that God will now love us and accept us and forgive us by ourselves. But that's the cool news of the Bible, isn't it? 
that he accepts us and loves us and forgives us in Christ. See, Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. Jesus came to live the perfect life because he was God in human flesh. And he lived the perfect life of obedience that we can't live. And then he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin and rebellion against God so that God has judged sin. And then he rose again from the dead to conquer death and conquer sin and to offer us new life that lasts forever. And so we can now have a relationship with God and we can be accepted by God and we can be forgiven by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Now the reason I stress that is because we so easily slip into this wrong mentality that we're to live good lives so that we can be loved and forgiven by God. What Peter's done is turn that completely around the other way. And he said, no, we are to live good lives because we are chosen and loved by God. In other words, my good works don't come into the equation of my relationship with God at all. I'm loved by God because there was a moment in my life where I realized that I was a sinner before God, that I was in serious trouble, that I'd failed him and rebelled against him, and I couldn't fix it. And so I chose to put my faith in Jesus as the one who did live that way and paid for my sin. And I'm now loved and accepted by God because of my faith in Jesus, because I've accepted his gift of life. It's what the Bible is talking about with that amazing word called grace. Paul, writing again to the Ephesians, said, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our relationship with God is never, ever based on our good works or our merit or our effort or what we do. We can't earn anything from God and we can't repay anything to God. We accept his gift of forgiveness and new life and a relationship with him by grace. And then we live a good life. Not to earn God's love and favor and grace, but because he's given us that. And it's such a crucial thing to understand. It is because we are chosen and loved that we live good lives for God's glory. And that's why Peter's written his letter the way he has, starting with chosen and loved and forgiven. And only once we get that, then he comes and says, right, now that you realize that it's all by God's grace, you can't earn anything, your good works don't come into it, now live a life of good works. Do good. Be a great person and live for God's glory. That's the call to live good lives for God. And Peter is going to reiterate that again and again and again. The idea of a good life is scattered through the rest of his letter. So in in verse 15, in the next section, he's going to say it's God's will that by doing good we should silence the talk of foolish people. Verse 20, if you suffer for doing good, chapter 3, verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Verse 16, so that those who speak against your good behavior may be ashamed. What Peter's calling us to is good lives, is good behavior, is a life of doing good for others. That shows the character of God. But not because we're trying to earn our way with God, but because we're already chosen and loved. 
Paul does the same thing. In fact, in the very next verse, after the verses we read in Ephesians 2, that we are not saved by our good works, we're saved by his grace through faith, he then immediately says, for we are God's handiwork, we're God's works of art created in Christ to do good works. So we don't earn anything from God, but because God gives us new life and forgiveness and grace and heaven freely, when we choose to trust in Jesus, we now live a life of good works in response. So again, Titus 2, uh, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Uh, Titus 2 verse 14, Jesus came to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, in the New Testament, which was written in the, in the Greek language, uh, originally ancient Greek, there were two words for good that are used. Uh, in the New Testament. Both of those Greek words for good have the idea of moral goodness, of holiness, of living a good life that is morally upright. But the word that Peter uses here also has the idea of both being morally upright but also beautiful. It's the word, a word that means attractive. And so what Peter's saying is live an attractive life. Live a life that... That is a beautiful exhibit of the character of God to a world around us. So it's not just living a holy life, living a pure life, that's part of it, but it's also living a life that is both pure and attractive. It's both holy and beautiful. In other words, we're meant to live in such a way that people around us, our friends and our family members who don't know Jesus, who maybe don't know much about the Bible or Christianity at all, they look at our lives and they go, there's something different about you. There's, there's something beautiful there that I see. That doesn't mean that it's always beautiful. Because the fact is that we get it wrong and we sin and we can give in to sinful desires and sometimes... Our lives don't look very attractive at all. But on the whole, what Peter's saying is when we do abstain from sinful desires, verse 11, and live good lives, verse 12, there's something beautiful and attractive in the way we live that appeals to others. That's how it's often worked through our human history. One author called J.B. Phillips written this great comment about the way that the, the, the early church flourished in the Roman Empire. He writes, the Christian faith took root and flourished in an atmosphere almost entirely pagan, where cruelty and sexual immorality were taken for granted, where slavery and the inferiority of women were almost universal, while superstition and rival religions with all kinds of bogus claims existed on every hand. And then he goes on to write this. There we go. With this pagan chaos... The early Christians, by the power of God within them, lived lives as sons and daughters of God, demonstrating purity and honesty, patience and genuine love. They were pioneers of a new humanity. See, that's the kind of attractive life, J.B. Phillips is saying, that Peter calls us to, that actually has power to draw people who don't know God yet. I love the way that um, American pastor Chuck Swindoll, who is the president of my seminary when I was studying there with Rochelle, he just writes about this, the most convincing defense against slander is the silent integrity 
of our character. I love that. The silent integrity of our character. That's what Peter's calling for. Peter's saying if we want to change the world, it's not going to change by us trying to get government to, to, to change legislation. It's not going to change by standing on street corners and beating people over their heads with a Bible as they walk past. It's going to change by the quality and beauty of our lives, individually and together as a church community. We're called to live good lives for God. And in the reason we're called to live that way, because he's gone command, reason, command, reason, is that there's a reason for this positive command now as well. And the reason is that they may glorify God. You notice that at the end of verse 12. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter's actually here echoing the words of Jesus. Uh, from the famous Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talked about his followers being like salt and light. And and Jesus, he he put it this way, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, and then you are the light of the world. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light shine before others. Here it is, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See what Peter writes? Live good lives. Why? So that they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The day he visits us in Peter is probably the day of judgment at the end of time where every single person will stand before God and give an account for their lives and he will judge all sin. But those who have trusted in Jesus, he is going to welcome into heaven because we get in on the merits of Jesus. And people will glorify God on the day of judgment, the day he visits us, because they've come to faith. And see, what Peter's saying, and what Jesus, I think, is saying, is that when we live beautiful, attractive, godly lives in front of people, when we abstain from sinful desires and instead live good lives for God that have got an attractive quality to them, some of our friends may end up becoming part of the family of God too. Some of our friends may end up in conversations with us, maybe come to church with us. Lord willing, they end up trusting in Jesus. So at the end of time, they glorify God along with us because of our beautiful lives. And you know what? If you're sitting here today checking out Christianity, if you're listening to this on the internet down in Hastings, I'm betting that one of the reasons that you're checking out the faith is because of someone you know who's a follower of Jesus and there's something about their life that makes a difference. There's something attractive about the way they go through life. And if that's the case, you're, you're so welcome. Take your time, check out the claims of what Jesus said. But that's the power of living a good life. And that's what Peter's on. This, um, this article about why Christianity isn't relevant, Benjamin Sledge went on and said this comment. After saying how, how weird we can sometimes be, uncool, he goes on and says, the culture at large will see the things we do and the traditions we follow as myths. But the love and grace and acceptance that we extend they won't be able to argue with if we truly live the life of Jesus to others. 
So while Christianity may never be completely relevant or completely cool, here's what it will be attractive. That's the power of what Peter is calling us to. To abstain from sin because we're at war and to live good lives, attractive lives in front of people because through that, they may end up coming to faith and following him. By the way, these four elements correspond to those four ways of maybe living as exiles in this world. Peter's saying, don't fit in. Don't just be like everyone else in the world around you who just does whatever they feel like. No, you abstain from sin because you are to be holy. But don't either opt out. Because opting out is not the way that people around us are going to see good deeds. If, if people, friends and family members who don't know Jesus are going to be affected by the attractiveness of our lives, we have to have friendships with people and not huddle into our own little bubbles. We can't opt out. And we don't worry about fighting back because it's not the world around us, it's not the government, it's not the culture that we're fighting against, it's, it's ourselves and our own sinful tendencies. Let's, let's win those battles so that that way we stand out and live good lives for him because we're chosen and loved. So what is that going to look like in our lives? Well, that's where Peter's going next. And over the next few weeks, what he's going to do in the rest of this middle chunk of his letter is he's going to talk about what a good life looks like as a citizen in our community. And he's going to talk about what a good life looks like at the workplace and in business. And he's going to talk about what a good life looks like in marriage and in the home. And he's going to look like, talk about the power of a good life lived all together as a church community. And so he's going to flesh out how we do that in, in the coming weeks. But the key for us to get today is that if we're going to raise our evangelistic temperature, if we're going to be praying for uh, lost friends and family members who don't know Jesus yet, that they'd come to know Jesus, then our lives have to measure up to that. Because the, the foundation of, of being able to talk about Jesus is a life that already reflects that. And so Peter says, let's live good lives for God's glory. Because when we do that, we then get given the opportunities as God opens the doors to tell our friends about the difference that Jesus makes. I want to end today, actually, with the story of someone who's found those opportunities to start suddenly coming thick and fast. Zach Colpin is one of the young adults in our church. And like many of us, as we've gone through this year about raising the evangelistic temperature and we've started trying to pray more for our friends who don't know Jesus yet, what Zach has found is as he's been doing that and as he's been thinking about this more and, and looking for opportunities, God's just opening up opportunities for him left, right and centre. So a few days ago in the office, Zach was in, and so we sat him down and just asked him to share a little bit about some of the opportunities he started to have to talk about Jesus. So have a listen. Hey, I'm Zach. Um, been at Botany Life for a long time. <laughs> um, so... I've been on um, a bit of a journey this year um, as, as part of the church as we've been kind of looking to 
increase our evangelistic temperature and, and um, talk about our faith more. Um, and since I've um, yeah been kind of actively praying that that I'd have those opportunities, God has opened those doors this year particularly, um, which has been very exciting and actually very scary too. Um, so I'd just like to yeah share a couple of um, well there's been uh, multiple stories but I'll share a couple of stories today as as what's been happening um, in my workplace. So I have had um, in my current workplace been kind of um, building some really good friendships with some people, um, which has been awesome. Um, in and out of work and in one one friend of in particular. Um, have, yeah, he's really been on my heart um, to pray for at work. So um, this year, have yeah really been um, actively praying for him and in community group, and even with my flat actually and other people. And um, ever since then, um, yeah, these conversations have started coming up about God, and um, I haven't actually been driving those conversations, which is the the crazy thing. Um, and quite exciting. So, yeah, he's kind of will make comments um, and um, kind of just mention about things in his life, um, kind of alluding to God and um, or the universe. Um, and I've been able to kind of um, talk to that. And it's not even that I've had to extremely kind of evangelise to him or anything like that. Um, I've just kind of spoken my thoughts. Um, and my walk with God and, and my relationship with Jesus and um, that's been awesome and um, I've, yeah I think it's like a it's been a um, something that's kind of opened my eyes to, to God's heart and his um, love for others and um, kind of compelled me to talk about it more as well um, so that's been awesome um, but also I've just had some other kind of crazy opportunities um, another colleague um, he kind of just mentioned that um, just being in, in my workplace that um, I don't know I'm easy to deal with <laughs> compared to some people maybe and uh, we've just kind of had a, a good connection so um, uh, yeah we've We've kind of hung out a bit, and um, he's kind of talked to me about some of his, um, well, some of his faith journey and some of the struggles in his life, um, which has been really interesting. And um, again, I've been able to to kind of talk to my faith and and um, why I have a hope, um, which has been awesome. And he's really respected that. And I mean, it's been a scary thing because I've kind of always thought, you know, you, you talk about your faith and you might scare people away, especially um, especially in Western culture. Um, but um, it hasn't been a scary thing and hasn't, like, pushed people away or, or made them think I'm weird, <laughs> which is something that normally runs through your brain, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I've... It's... Um, there's been other kind of stories and um, it's been an exciting year but um, one thing that for me um, kind of solidified it um, was a quote that I recently read and that was about um, being called to not necessarily be successful but just to be called to be, we're called to be faithful um, and to, to share and yeah, we, we don't have to get it perfect but um, yeah, um, God's going to kind of work through that. 
so cool, isn't it? As we pray more and think more and have eyes open more and ears open more, what God can do. And I just want to pray for us this morning that as a church community and as individual followers of Jesus, that we would really live out what Peter is calling us to do, to abstain from sinful desires, to those, those things that battle in us, that we would stand firm and choose to live um, well for him, live holy lives for him, but not just in the sense of what we don't do, but also in the sense of, of the beautiful way we do live our lives, that we would increasingly live good lives among people that we love and we'd love to see in the family of God. And so I just want to pray for us that this would be true of us as we continue this journey together as a church. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this cool letter in the New Testament that Peter wrote under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to tell not only his original readers but also us down through the the centuries. This is what we're called to do. This is why you saved us why you gave us your grace in Jesus and why you've forgiven us and why you love us, why you've adopted us as your kids um, in a relationship that you'll never let us go. It's so that we would then live out this great news for other people around us. God, we acknowledge today we don't get this right. So often we do give in to the desires that we shouldn't. So often our lives do look just like everyone else around us. And yet we also instinctively know the power of living a life that does look different, that maybe isn't as cool, but there's something about a life lived for you that is attractive and beautiful when we choose to walk with your spirit. And so God, I want to pray for all of us today, all of us here at Botany, for those listening in Hastings, for those in Nepal or somewhere else in the world, Um, watching or listening over the internet. God, for those of us who are your followers who have placed our faith in Jesus, I pray that you would continue to empower us by your spirit to abstain from those desires, to fight that war and to live attractive lives, beautiful lives of love and grace with the people that you've placed in our friendship circles. And God, for those who don't yet know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with you, I pray that you would continue to draw them and that they would see that this attractiveness comes from what your grace does to us in the depths of our being. Pray for them that you would draw each of them into a relationship with you that they would place their faith in Jesus too. God, we just want to glorify you in response to all that you have done for us, accepting us, loving us, choosing us, forgiving us in Jesus. We long for our lives to glorify you and we commit ourselves to that. In Jesus' name, amen.